Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we conclude Second Chronicles with chapter 36. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was twenty-five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of Yahweh to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim his son reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was eighteen years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. In the spring of the year King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon when, with the precious vessels of the house of Yahweh, and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was twenty-one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of Yahweh. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of Yahweh that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of Yahweh, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbath, to fulfill seventy years. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, Yahweh the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him. Let him go up. This is the word of the Lord. So again, this is our final text. It concludes the book, and it has slightly more at the end of it than the books of Kings. We've been paralleling Kings pretty well all the way throughout Chronicles. There have been some additional things. And the last note is the, the setting free, the idea that Cyrus, king of Persia, has restored, and it's spoken of historically. So this, this helped us date the book of Chronicles to sometime after the people were restored, until after the temple has been restored, and they're back in Judah, back in Jerusalem, which puts this, I was confused, the B.C. centuries, uh, 6th century B.C., so the 500s, or 5th century B.C., the 400s. Most seem to think 400s, if I recall correctly from, was that a couple months ago? Anyway, as we look at this text, we're going to have multiple kings today. We have Jehoahaz, we have then Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, and all four of them are evil. Jehoahaz is not described that way, so he's like Abijah, in the book of Kings being described as evil there, so is Jehoahaz. So they, he is evil, just didn't get recorded by the chronicler. So our total, our grand total for the book, for Judah kings, eight that did right in the eyes of Yahweh, nine that did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, plus Abijah, plus Jehoahaz. And that makes for a total of 19 kings who reigned over the land. So Jehoahaz gets just three months as king, He's going to be deposed by Pharaoh Necho, and that would be 609 B.C., roughly. And so Necho is going to not only depose him, he's going to put a tribute on the land. So every year, the people of Judah are supposed to pay this tribute to Egypt. He's basically made them his servants. And so that's 100 talents of silver, uh, talent being 75 pounds, so 75 pounds of gold, and then 7,500 pounds of silver, an annual, basically an annual offering. And then Nico makes Eliakim king in his place and changes his name in doing so. So Eliakim is brother, so another one of Josiah's sons. In fact, most of these are Josiah's sons, not all. This is a symbol of his authority. It's a regular reminder of whose king he really is, that now Jehoiakim, is no longer just a king in his own right. He can't do whatever he pleases, but he is, in fact, indeed a puppet king who is to serve Pharaoh Necho of Egypt and do what Pharaoh would like him to do. So that daily reminder would keep him in line to hear this new name. The name meaning didn't change. I mean, Necho is not... Necho and Nebuchadnezzar, both in this chapter, are not going to really mess with the faith of the people of Judah. So... Eliakim means God sets up or God establishes. Jehoiakim means Yahweh sets up or Yahweh establishes. So he's actually within the faith. And Nico himself, as he spoke to Josiah in yesterday's chapter, made mention of the fact that Yahweh was with him. So Nico's not, again, messing around with that, although the Egyptians would have been polytheistic, believing in many gods, as is Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that we see also in the text. So our second king, Jehoiakim, 25 years old when he starts, 
reigns 11 years. That's roughly 609 until 598, that kind of a time frame. He does evil in Yahweh's eyes. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is going to come against him, binding him in chains and carrying him off to Babylon. And not only that, Nebuchadnezzar is also going to take to Babylon much of the vessels from the house of Yahweh, the temple, not all of them, but a, a good portion. He's also going to take According to 2 Kings chapter 24, 10,000 captives, including many of the nobles, uh, those who would have had any kind of opportunity to rule. Now, the book of Daniel is probably where we learn the most about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as he is one of his servants. Daniel will serve him. At some point here, maybe in that, that event, that capture, Daniel and other young men are taken. Not even young men boys at that point. He's taken captive. He's brought to Nebuchadnezzar's house. He's trained in all the ways and arts of Babylon. And then after three years of training, all of those young boys, having grown up a little bit, are brought before the king to basically be tested to see if the king would like them to serve in his court or not. And none are found who are better than Daniel and his three friends that you know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, although those are not their given Hebrew names, those are the Babylonian names assigned to them. So, multiple connections here in the Old Testament for us with a text like this. Now, Jehoiakim is replaced then, and it's Jehoiakim, his son, who will reign in his place. Jehoiakim is 18 at the time, reigns for only three months, that's in 598 or 597 or maybe an overlap. He does evil. And then in the spring, Nebuchadnezzar comes against him and brings him out. And now we've got another king change. Nebuchadnezzar this time is going to set up a puppet king. Just as Nico set up Jehoiakim before, now Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the uncle. So it says brother here, the Hebrew word for brother occasionally used to refer to any blood relative. Uh, Kin, K-I-N, used sometimes as an appropriate English translation. Anyway, takes his uncle Mataniah, who is brother to both his father Jehoiakim and also Jehoiakim, all of these being sons of Josiah. So three of these men, the exception being Jehoiakim, who is son of Jehoiakim. I know the names sound awfully alike. Anyway, Jehoiakim, Jehoahaz and Mataniah Zedekiah. These three are all brothers, sons of Josiah. So Zedekiah Mataniah is the uncle to Jehoiakim. And there's a name change. It's not mentioned here, but Nebuchadnezzar does what Nico did. He changes the name of this king as a daily reminder of whose he actually is. He is not his own. He is under the authority of the king of Babylon. Zedekiah's rebellion against King Nebuchadnezzar is recorded in the book of 2 Kings. Um, right there at the end, chapters 24 and 25 deal with all of this. I guess 23 is included in this chapter's overlap as well. So he's 21 when he starts, reigns for 11 years. Again, evil in the sight of Yahweh. Does not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of Yahweh. So Yahweh is going to bring his messenger, Jeremiah, to speak of well, the typical prophetic word, uh, repent or perish, as Jesus himself will speak in Luke 13. It's the idea that, yes, you have sinned against God. If you repent, 
he will have mercy. If you continue in your sin, he will destroy. And this is a common message again of the prophets. Zedekiah hears this from Jeremiah and refuses to acknowledge it, refuses to repent, keeps going in the way that he's been going. Zedekiah's name actually appears 50 times in the book of Jeremiah. You will see interaction between the two men in chapters 21, 27, 34, 37, and 38, although Zedekiah shows up in many other chapters as well, but those are the ones where they're actually communicating uh, in reference to what's happening here. So he rebels against Yahweh, rebels against the prophet, rebels against the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who even made him swear by God. So just like you think of the American court system and how they used to make you take an oath on the word of God, Nebuchadnezzar, again, not messing with the faith of Judah here, polytheistic worldview, there are many gods in his mind, so here's, here's a god, you believe in this god, okay, swear by your god, your fealty to me, your loyalty to me, and so he's broken that, stiffened his neck, hardened his heart, those are both statements of unbelief, phrases representing it, so he will not do what Nebuchadnezzar wants him to do. He won't do what Yahweh wants him to do. He is hardened. He is unbelieving against God. And the people do likewise. They were exceedingly unfaithful. They followed the abominations of the nations. A family conversation on that could get into the idea of how do we follow the nations today? Like, let's examine our lives. What are the things that we do that everybody else around us does too? There are many ways uh, that we we do that. And so that's good to examine, to think through the patterns, the routines of our life, and see if they're beneficial. Does this help me love God? Does this help me love my neighbor? Is this a way through which the Lord gives me his love and his forgiveness? Those are good questions to be asking. And that gets us into the next paragraph, too, because here we see Yahweh persistently sending his messengers, the prophets, because he had compassion on his people. So he's seeking to give them mercy. He's seeking to love them, save them, forgive them, and they're refusing it. And that's the next conversation for a family here. How does God do this for us? Certainly the conversation starts with Christ on the cross, his death, his blood shed for us that forgives our sins. And now, having been given this gift of faith through the water of baptism or the proclaimed word of the gospel, How does the Lord continue to send his messengers or his message to us? And we can talk about reading God's word. We can talk about our called pastors who serve us in our churches as we hear that word of God week in and week out, day in and day out. But unfortunately, the people mock his prophets, despise them, and God's wrath comes upon them until there is no remedy. Romans 1 is similar here, uh, that essentially at, at a point, God gives a sinner over to the hardness of their heart. After so much opportunity to repent, if they refuse it and they really want what their heart wants, God binds them to that. He lets them have it to their own destruction. So so it was with Jerusalem. Therefore, he brought up the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are a subgroup of the Babylonians. Just like you might say, everyone who lives in the United States, they're Americans. But if you're from Missouri where I serve at the moment, uh, we would say Missourians, and that's a subgroup of American. That's the kind of picture here, really. It's a a tribe within Babylon, 
And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, happens to be from that group of people. So he's king of Babylon, and he's from Chaldea. And he shows no compassion. So Yahweh sought to show compassion, and judgment Nebuchadnezzar shows none, slaughters anyone. Young man, virgin, old, doesn't matter. Even does so in the house of God, in the sanctuary. He takes all the things of God. They burn down Jerusalem, tear down the walls, destroy the temple, all such destruction. And they take those who have not been killed, they take them captive into Babylon to be his servants until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. That's a reference to 539 BC that Yahweh is going to destroy this Babylonian empire, handing it over to the king of Persia. And that actually happens almost entirely bloodlessly from the accounts that I've read. Uh, Belshazzar, who's basically acting king in 539 of Babylon, destroyed, killed by Cyrus, king of Persia, otherwise bloodless. The death of the king, and that's it. So, fulfills Yahweh's word that the land would have its Sabbaths. One of Yahweh's Old Testament commands for his people, a thing of the Sabbath, a thing of trust, is that every seventh year was a Sabbath year. And I know that's an incredibly difficult concept for us, that you would actually not work for a year, that you would let your lands rest for a year. But that was God's call for his people. Trust in him, just like the manna. Trust in God. He'll put it there. Or he won't put it there. God will provide. And so the people had not been trusting this. The, the land has missed 70 Sabbaths, basically. I mean, that's over the span of 490 years. It's missed all these Sabbath years. They haven't kept it. And so it's going to get its time now. From 587 BC, when Jerusalem falls, until 517, maybe 515, I think, is the dedication of the temple. So they don't return right away, even though Cyrus sets them free in 537. It takes them a little while to get home. They don't leave as fast as they should have. So Cyrus proclaims them free. And we get the quote from Ezra 1. What he, des- he describes, and his quote is a, a fantastic one. Let's come back to it in just a second. First, that the word of Jeremiah, the word of Yahweh by Jeremiah's mouth would be fulfilled. And that's Jeremiah 29, that he would redeem his people. He would bring them back from Babylon, bring them out of exile, and so forth. Now the word Cyrus says, Yahweh, so he's confessing faith with that. God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's acknowledging that his authority comes from Yahweh. This is fantastic. Charge me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you, let God be with him. Go. Cyrus is going to pay for the rebuilding of Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. Again, fantastic stuff here. It sounds an awful lot like faith. It encourages us that we might see Cyrus in paradise someday. I say might. The the thing that shakes that is a find archaeologically on Cyrus. So we don't have a whole lot about him in scripture as a man or a king or his faith. We see a great statement here, but the Cyrus cylinder, um, which was found in the 19th century, the Cyrus cylinder is not much bigger than a football. It's a cylindrical clay 
vessel, and on it is written part of the history, the account of King Cyrus's reign. And one of the things we see in there is this idea that, what positively, that he had a practice when he conquered a new area that he would free the people who were enslaved there. So if they were already subjects in that empire, he as he annexed that part to his kingdom, he set them free, let them go home, let them rebuild their homes. So that's that's actually an attest to what we see here in Scripture. However, it also has him worshiping a Babylonian god. So Babylon, like Egypt, polytheistic, believing in many gods. And so Cyrus may not quite have shaken free of all of that. Again, maybe we'll see him in paradise. It would be fantastic if we do. So this is the end of the account of the Chronicles, the kings of Judah, the focus being on worshiping the Lord in his house.